And turn to that passage we read moments ago, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This morning I want us to consider somewhat of a different approach to the resurrection. Uh, As we've been going through the Gospel of John, we're uh, in chapter 14 and we're looking at Jesus just in the preparation days, just a few days before his death, and uh, it did not fit uh, time-wise to uh, talk about his resurrection from John. We'll do that again, Uh, but that's uh, not bad. Uh, Well, we should be thinking about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ every Sunday we come. Because every Sunday is really Resurrection Sunday. On the first day of the week, uh, we celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ each time we come to our services here on uh, the Lord's Day. But this morning, I want to consider this uh, from uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, We're looking at a passage that probably not often used on Resurrection Sunday. But it does contain some wonderful truths, and I hope that you were uh, watching for some of those opportunities to see the resurrection as we read uh, the scriptures just moments ago. But notice uh, verse 15. Verse 15 says, And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Here's the gospel, and the truth of this verse is that believing the gospel, the good news of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, the truth is going to make a difference in the life of a believer. And I propose that it will make a radical difference, and by that I mean there's going to be a great change in the life of a person who trusts Christ as his or her Savior. And this morning, there are many who will say, I'm a Christian, but what is it that sets a Christian apart from other people? What is it that sets a Christian apart from other people in the world, in our community, in the workplace, in the stores, in the schools, in the churches? What makes a Christian special? And for that matter, why are we here? What is our purpose? And I propose that it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead that brings great results in our lives. If it had not been for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we would not have the gospel, and there would be no salvation, and there would really be no reason for us to gather today. Someone has put the importance of the resurrection this way. They said, just as the heart pumps life-giving blood to every part of the body, so the truth of the resurrection gives life to every other area of the gospel truth. The resurrection is the pivot on which all of Christianity turns and without which none of the other truths would much matter. The resurrection is central to the Christian gospel. The resurrection is central to all the facets of Christian doctrine. 
And of course, we need go no further than the words we have already heard this morning and the words we read in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to see that his bodily resurrection was central to his own claims. It was he that claimed that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and uh, of the chief priests and of the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He was the one that said at the grave of his friend Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth on me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Now we could go to the book of Acts this morning and we could find the first two sermons at Pentecost, how they focus solely on the subject of the resurrection of Jesus. You can read them in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 3. It was the truth of the resurrection that turned those dejected disciples into the courageous witnesses and martyrs of the Acts of the Apostles and of Christian history that many of us know so well. You see, it was this essential truth and doctrine that Jesus rose again from the grave that fired these men and women of God to spread the gospel in only a few years across almost the whole of the Roman Empire and the known world And then even beyond. The truth of the resurrection is basic. It's vital. It's fundamental to everything that we believe as Christians. We would have to say that our faith stands or falls upon this truth. And the implication of this, because it is the cornerstone of the gospel, is that it had been Satan's target down through the ages of Christian's history. Christian history. Did Jesus really raise from the dead? That's what Satan would want to try to put into the minds of people even today. Right from Paul's day, right from the very moments, uh, moment that Christ rose bodily from the grave, the accusations have been floating about. Right up to this very day among some of the cults, even among some who would call themselves Christians and ministers in a liberal sense, of course, But Satan attacks this doctrine because Satan knows that this doctrine is foundational. That Jesus claimed in everything that Christians believe. I remember a few years back, there was a a big media fervor concerning the so-called finding of Jesus' bones. Maybe you remember that as well. And they, they said, well, finding the bones of Christ would disprove the resurrection upon which Christians base their faith. The New York Times reported the contention that Jesus was married, had a child, and left behind his bones, suggesting he did not bodily, uh, was not bodily resurrected. That contradicts core Christian doctrine. And if Satan and the skeptics can put doubts into the minds of the people concerning the resurrection, that would undermine the fundamental beliefs of Christianity, and Satan has been putting doubt into people's minds ever since the Garden of Eden. If there was no resurrection, then there is no life-giving power. If there is no resurrection, then there is no power in the gospel to change a man's life. If Christ was not raised from the dead, then there is no divinity in his nature. If Christ did not come back to life, there is no salvation from sin. There is no eternal life for any of us to look forward to. 
In fact, the apostle says it himself back in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. You see, without the resurrection, salvation cannot be provided for. And for us, practically speaking today, in the age of grace, without belief in the resurrection, salvation cannot be received. Does not Paul say in Romans chapter 9 or 10, verse 9, that thou, thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. And the implication of that is that we cannot receive salvation that was procured by the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ if we do not believe in his resurrection as well as his death. You cannot be a Christian this morning and not believe in the bodily resurrection of the Lord. When we believe the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, we believe an essential element of the gospel, and it makes a great change in our lives. It brings a radical result. Now, what are those results? Well, we find them here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Notice the first one is, we are converted. Go down to verse 17. Now, uh, this is a message that doesn't take all the verses right in order as you find them there. Uh, so I don't want to try to confuse you, but I'm going to start at verse 17. If, or therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. That's talking about being converted. That's talking about salvation. That's where the results begin. It's a difference between being saved or lost. Salvation is a conversion or a change from a lost person to a saved person. When you get saved, you're changed from, first of all, a sinful walk. A sinful walk. In in the epistle to the Ephesians, you find it says, wherein... In time past, you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Ephesians 2 Verses 2 and 3, these verses reveal the sinful walk of those who are not saved. Because you had a sinful nature, you lived a sinful life. You were more concerned about pleasing yourself than pleasing Almighty God. And when you got saved, you received a new nature. And as your new nature changed, so did your lifestyle. When you got saved, old things passed away. If It would be unnatural for a Christian to continue to live the old sinful life. When you get saved, you're not only changed from a sinful walk, but you're changed into a spiritual walk. When you get saved, God gives you a new nature. You become a new creature. This new nature desires to please God. You discover attending church brings joy. It becomes a delight to read your Bible. As a believer, you now spend time praying. Praying to God. Paul wrote of this changed life. He said, behold, all things are become new. 
Salvation experience always changes you. The presence of a changed life is evidence that you have become a new creature in Christ Jesus. It is this changed life that assures you that you are saved. I wonder, has the resurrection changed your life? Let me ask you some questions this morning. Have you recognized you are a sinner? Man's basic spiritual condition eliminates him from heaven, from eternal life. No matter how many church services you attend, no matter how many good deeds you do for others, you will not gain heaven. There's no way to get to God but the Bible way. Secondly, have you recognized there's a penalty for sin? God is a righteous God, a holy God. His very nature demands that sin must be paid for. The Bible says for the wages of sin is death. Thirdly, have you recognized that God has given His Son to pay that penalty? There's nothing you can do to gain heaven. Again, the Bible says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And then, fourthly, have you recognized you must accept that gift? You accept it by believing in Him and turning from your sin. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Maybe you're here this morning. You've never received that gift. And I invite you to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. You say, well, I've been going to church for years. My parents are Christians. Yes, have you? But have you been truly saved? Have you been converted? John 1, 12 and 13 says, But as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name, which were born not of blood, nor the will of man, or the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. I cannot make you experience salvation this morning. There must be an inward working of the Spirit of God, and you must act by faith to receive that which God has done for you. It's because of the resurrection that you can be saved. You can be converted, be changed. There's another radical result of resurrection, and that is confident. Now go back to verse 6. We're talking about assurance here. Verse 6 says, Therefore, if we are always, therefore we are always confident, knowing. Now there's two words right together that that go together. Confident and knowing. Knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident. There's the word again. I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore, we labor that we, whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. You see, because of this truth of the resurrection, because of the reality of the resurrection, you can be confident that your salvation is the real thing. If you have come to Christ by faith, you've believed in His death, His burial, resurrection, then your salvation is authentic. It's genuine. Look back at verse 1. Verse 1 says again, For we, and the next word is, no. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God and house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. For we know, 
Heaven is a sure thing. Heaven is a real place. It's just not the figment of somebody's imagination. It's a real place. Do you believe that? Are you confident about that this morning? Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who also hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. You see, you have God's word on it. You have God's guarantee. You have God's promise. You have God's assurance. If you hold your place there in 1 Corinthians and turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1 for just a moment. I want you to notice several very key words and phrases here in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a dead hope. Is that what it says? No. This isn't something that's dead. This is not something that's just, uh, you know, is going to pass away. It's a lively hope. How? By the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Oh, it's a lively hope. It comes by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus conquered death, we can have life, life eternal. And you notice here, it's something that's incorruptible, it's undefiled, it fadeth not away, it's reserved in heaven, and you are kept by the word, by the power of God. Now you notice back in 2 Corinthians 5 that Paul reminds us that this confidence we can fulfill the purpose we have here on earth. If you have this confidence, you can fulfill the purpose God has for you. What is our purpose? Is our purpose to preach sermons? Is our purpose to raise children? Is our purpose to build houses? Is our purpose to fix broken things? Like trucks? Is that our purpose? How about selling things? You know, a lot of people sell things. Is that our purpose in life? You say, well, my purpose is to clean up after people. I know moms, wives. Sometimes you think, that's my purpose in life, to clean up after people. Some of you perhaps work in an office or something. Your, your purpose is to shuffle papers. My, uh, my mother was a paper shuffler. I kind of get that from her. My wife accuses me of wanting to shuffle papers, you know, get things all in, you know, in order. Is your purpose to calculate numbers? Is your purpose to make money, to spend money, to save money? Is that your purpose in life? Why are we here? Of all the things that are important in one sense, yes, these things are important. It is important to preach the gospel, the word of God. It's important to raise children. It's important to have a house and to build houses for other people. It's important to fix things because somebody can't 
You know, some of us guys can't fix anything. We can tear things up, but we can't fix them. It's important to sell products. It's important to clean up after people. It's important to shuffle papers. It's important to calculate numbers and make money and spend money and save money. But it's not the most important. These are not the main things. These are means by which we can confidently and with full assurance know that God has called us to live in and influence our corner of the world. We need Christians to preach. We need Christian parents. We need Christian factory workers. We need Christian business people and janitors and salespeople. Now, by the way, we don't need Christian bartenders or casino workers, okay? So just don't even go there. But is that really the purpose for our existence? No doubt there are, were some of these kind of things going on in Corinth. That's where Paul was writing to the church there at Corinth. But Paul is not saying, keep your focus on making money. Keep your focus on the work of your occupation. Keep your focus on this or that. No, the Holy Spirit is telling us through Paul that yes, we're looking for a day when we will be done with this life and we'll be enjoying our home in heaven with the Lord. But while we're here on this earth, we need to be laboring. You see it in verse 9 there? Laboring. It says in verse 9, Wherefore? We labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. We have a work to do. And we must get about it with confidence, knowing that we are where God wants us to be. And with confidence and boldness, he wants us to be pleasing to him in all that we do. We preach and we build and we fix, we sell, clean, shuffle, calculate, and so on as unto the Lord. We do, it, we do what we do for Him in order that we might have a clear testimony for Him. And that's the result of the resurrection. Jesus died and rose again that we might have a life that pleases Him. And so we're converted. Secondly, we're co- confident. Thirdly, we're concerned. This has to do with our passion. Our conversion and our confidence in the Lord leads us to our concern for the souls of others. Look at verse 11. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. This goes along with the purpose of our labor. We persuade men. When we know the answers to life's problems, when we know what will happen if man doesn't come to God, then we need to have a compassion for them and we need to give them, give them the gospel. You know, if you were driving along and there was a house on fire, you think, is there somebody in that house that needs to be warned? If you're sitting in your living room one day and you're reading the newspaper, you're watching television, you notice your neighbor's house is on fire, you don't look up again and just say, Oh, Mary, by the way, did you notice the neighbor's house is on fire? No, you get up and you do something about it. 
John 4.35 says, Say not ye, there are four yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, Lift up your eyes and look into the fields, for they are white already to harvest. You turn with me back just a few pages to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he hath promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by, notice here, the resurrection from the dead. I want you to see that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the basis for Paul's great passion. Paul was a passionate person. He had a great concern for those who did not know Christ. You look down in verse 16 and notice what it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You go over to chapter 9. Chapter 9 and verse 2. That I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. The next chapter, chapter 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer for, to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Go to chapter 11, verse 14. Chapter 11, verse 14, If by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh and might save some of them. You see, it's on the basis of the resurrection that Paul expresses such passion for the lost and especially for his own loved ones, the people of Israel. And if you and I would get a hold of this great truth and let it work in our hearts, we too would have a concern for those who do not know Christ. The radical results of the resurrection are that you can be converted. Are you saved? You can be confident. Do you have the assurance of your salvation? You can be concerned. Are you concerned and have a passion for souls? Fourthly, constrained. Again, in 2 Corinthians 5, look at verse 14. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they should which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. It was the great love of God that sent Christ to the cross and then to rise again on the third day. And the word constraineth here means to compel or to motivate What is it that motivates you today? What makes you do the things that you do? Is it money? Is it acceptance by your peers? Is it that which is temporary? That's going to be here today and gone tomorrow. Is that what motivates you? Or is it that which is eternal? 
Are we accomplishing the purpose of God in our lives? Are our motives carnal or are they spiritual? Are we living in the flesh or are we living in the spirit? Now, you could be here this morning motivated by the flesh. There are a lot of people in church today around our country. This is Easter. People around the country, they've gone to church today because not because they love the Lord, because you're supposed to go to church on Sunday, on Easter Sunday. Maybe you came just, you know, I'm sorry, we didn't have breakfast, so you didn't come for breakfast. Uh, We don't hunt Easter eggs here, unless maybe they're fried or scrambled. But you know, there are some people who are taking their children to church because of an Easter egg hunt. That's why they went to church today. Some people go to church on Easter to show off a new outfit. And by the way, you all look great today. Some people go to church because they want to show off. Now, there's nothing wrong with having new, new, uh, new clothes. But is that what motivates you today? In reality, this Sunday is no different than any other Sunday of the year. Every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. We worship, we fellowship, we come to hear God's word on Sunday because Christ arose on the first day of the week and the love of God should compel us to be here faithfully every Sunday, not for an attendance reward, but for the blessing of God upon our lives. What is it that motivates you? You know, this whole chapter is about spiritual motivation. There is spiritual love. I'm talking about the love of God, agape love. Love not for what we can get, but rather what we can give. God loved us so much that He gave His only begotten Son. This is the death of Christ, and it's crucial. It's of vital importance. But if Christ had stayed on the cross or stayed in that tomb, we don't have everlasting life. Praise God, He loved us so much that Christ arose and conquered death and sin and hell. We have everlasting life. There's not only spiritual love, but there's spiritual life. You know what? We have the answers for all the issues of life. And there are a lot of issues. You say, I don't like issues. Well, that's life though. But we have the answer right here in this book. Christ died for all. Again, verse 15. We've read it once, we've read it twice, we've read it three times now. And that he died for all that we, and they that which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Galatians 2.20 says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In other place, Paul said, for me to live is Christ. You see, the spiritual life is holy. It's a separated life. And then there's spiritual knowledge. The only way to live successful Christian life is to know God. To know God, you must know His Word. 
Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. I had a couple of baseball illustrations. Some of us think that, you know, this is golf season, but really it's base, baseball season, right? Just started here. If you're a Twins fan, you ought to be rejoicing. They're winning a lot of games. If you're a Brewers fan, are they winning any games? Not enough. Not enough. How about the Cubs? Okay. I don't know how many of you like baseball. Some of you probably say, oh, I'd, I'd rather watch paint dry. <laughs> you know, baseball game that just goes on and on and on. But you know what? Really, the, the game of baseball kind of gives us a good illustration for the Christian life. Next time you're watching a baseball game, you might think about this. You see, to be successful in a baseball game, you must not only get on base... But you need to get back to home plate. If you just get to first or to second, you really haven't. That's not enough, is it, Brandon? You've got to get all the way around. You know, we could say getting to first base is like getting saved. Getting to second base is like reading the Bible. Getting third base is like praying to God. But you know, getting all the way to home plate is like bearing fruit. Are you a fruit-bearing Christian? Now that may involve a number of things. It could be involving soul winning, seeing other people saved. It could be encouraging a fellow Christian in the Lord, helping them, discipling someone to grow in the Lord. You know, it's not enough just to be a Christian and then say, okay, you're a Christian, you're good, go. That person needs to grow. They need to come more Christ-like, and an older Christian can help them do that. That's part of bearing fruit. Spiritual knowledge leads to a fruitful Christian life. And then there's spiritual ministry. God has given us responsibility. He has given to each one of us a ministry that tells us here in, in verse 19. The uh, ministry of reconciliation, or actually in verse 18, the ministry of reconciliation. And by the way, there's not a Christian here today who's exempt from this ministry. You see, if you fit in verse 17, what was verse 17? Being converted, being saved. If you're in verse 17, you're also in verse 18. Therefore, if any man be in Christ... That's verse 17, saved, converted. Verse 18 says, And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to him by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us, every one of us, the ministry of reconciliation. Every one of us who's saved is going to answer to God for whether or not we won souls to Christ, whether or not we ever win a single soul to Christ. That leads us to the last of this 
result of the resurrection. We're converted, we're confident, we're concerned, we're constrained, and then fifthly, we're commissioned. We have a ministry. Now that kind of runs into what we just said there, but it, it's, it's a natural progression here. Verse 20 says, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. This verse says, we are ambassadors. We are Christ's representatives here on this earth. Our testimony, our witness is important because we, number one, have a ministry. That's what verse 18 said. It's up to us to do the work of the ministry. We have a message. Look at verse 19. To wit that God is, was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and have committed unto us the word, that is the gospel, the message of reconciliation. And thirdly, verse 20, is a call to action. That's the mandate. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ did. Be ye reconciled to God. If you go back to Luke chapter 24, verse 46, it's Jesus speaking there to his disciples after the resurrection. And he says there, And said unto them, Thus it is written, And thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. All true born-again Christians have been given the same mandate. We have been commissioned for a great work here on earth, and that is to bring others to Christ. Listen, has the resurrection of Jesus Christ radically changed your life? Now, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior this morning, I invite you to come to Him. If you do not have a personal relationship with Him, you need by faith to come and accept the free gift of salvation. It will radically change your life. And no doubt many of you here have trusted Christ as your Savior. And you're thankful for this wonderful gift of salvation. You can remember the time and the place where you placed your trust in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. But, maybe you're, remember the time you were saved, but you're not walking, you're not living in the power of the Holy Spirit. You've been disobedient to God's Word. You've neglected God's Word. You're not living what is acceptable or pleasing to God. In order to allow the resurrection to make a difference in your life, you need to yield yourself daily to His service. You know, if Jesus were to come, or would have come, in the 21st century instead of the 1st century, would you have become a follower? Would you believe his message? If he was here today and he's arrested, he's being tried, he's being sentenced to die, where would you be? Would you be hiding? Would you be scared? Would you be hopeless? Would you be discouraged? When Jesus died on the cross, what would you have thought? Oh, Jesus is dead. But guess what? He didn't stay dead. 
He came forth from that tomb and he's alive. He's living today. And it, as it did to the disciples, it radically changed their lives. Now we have the account of all that here in our Bibles. And it should have the same effect on us as it did the disciples. Let's pray. Father,